Good Monday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you who um, had to go to work today had a good start to your uh, work week. I had a good day as well, uh, but nonetheless, uh, here we are on Monday evening. Hard to believe it's also the last week of July. Where is the time gone? goes by fast. Well, uh, last night in the podcast uh, that I shared with you all about Through the Perilous Fight, we uh, learned about uh, the emergence of a new uh, militia commander, not just for Baltimore, but for the um, the Baltimore campaign, being uh, Major General uh, Samuel Smith. We also learned about three other prominent men who have made an illustrious career for themselves, or should I say illustrious careers, since we're talking about more than one uh, naval uh, figure, especially from last night's podcast. I'll recap. This is... We learned about um, Captain John Rogers, Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry, to Captain David Porter. We basically uh, learned last night how new um, military men uh, from the um, seas, or should I say from the Navy, how they are going to make their uh, presence be felt come the time of uh, the Battle of Baltimore, which is just around the corner that we will discuss in a future podcast session. But for tonight... We're going to um, talk about the, um, what do you call it, the uh, capture of a prominent doctor in Upper Marlboro, which is on the outskirts of Baltimore. His name is um, Dr. William Beans. But before we get to Dr. Beans, I did mention from a previous podcast, and I will mention this here again, that on Saturday... um, August the 27th of 1814, the British departed from Upper Marlboro. They departed, they went back to um, the ships, or, or should I say their, their ships, where their men could recoup, um, they could get the rest they needed, uh, so that when the time came to prepare for uh, the fight for Baltimore, they would be better prepared. I still believe this was a huge mistake on the part of British military leadership. For one, Upper Marlboro is not far from Baltimore, and two, the people of Baltimore, they knew what was at stake, but they were still in the um, beginning stages of getting their city uh, prepared for what for the inevitable. However, the British had a had a gold, or should I say, a golden opportunity to put a dagger into the hearts of the people of Baltimore. In other words, here you are on the offensive. You've already burnt Washington. You've got momentum left and right. Why stop now? Why take your foot off the pedal? Basically, you've got the enemy on the run to the point to where. They're not going to know, in the eyes of British leadership, they're not, the enemy's not going to know how to regroup. They may not even want to put up a fight. All they may know in, in the eyes of the British is to surrender and run like, and maybe we call it run as if, you're, as if you're a chicken and your head's cut off trying to cross the other side of the road. So, in my opinion here, real quick, what I truly believe the British should have done As I said from a previous podcast, when the burning of Washington took place, uh, 
Major General Robert Ross had uh, 200 men with him. Rear Admiral uh, George Coburn and Vice, Rear Vice Admiral uh, Richard uh, Cochran should have um, marched their forces north to Baltimore. Of course, Baltimore is 40 miles northeast of Washington. I don't know if they could have gotten all 40 miles in, but at the same time, the British at this point have so much momentum on them, I think they could have marched the full 40 miles in one night. After all, the people of Baltimore can see fire from 40 miles away. So if they could see fire from 40 miles away, I, I think they could be prepared to see almost anything coming at them from a close proximity. And that would mean people from the opposition wanting to inflict harm. So basically, uh, Rear Admiral George Coburn and Vice Admiral Richard Cochran, or Alexander Cochran, I should say, pardon me, I apologize for that uh, mistake right there, but yes, Vice Admiral Alexander Cochran, they all should have... Um, both of those men under their leadership should have taken what was left of their squadrons up to Baltimore and launched a surprise attack on the people of Baltimore to where Baltimore would have just uh, surrendered. So when you know you've got your enemy defeated at, at one spot, you need to go to the next available spot nearby to finish them off. So this is something that's going to come back and uh, backfire on the British here um, and I'll perhaps share more from another uh, podcast session down the road. But as for uh, Dr. William Beans, he is, um, he is of uh, prominent important, importance to Upper Marlboro. How so? He is a 65-year-old physician. He is a major landowner. So he owns lots of land. He is the owner of a grist mill. But he is a staunch Federalist. He is opposed to President Madison in the War of 1812. And most Federalists were opposed to um, President Madison, the Federalists being the ones who favor the strong central government. Uh, they believe in um, tighter, perhaps in their day, tighter government regulations. They don't believe in um, issuing embargoes like what Thomas Jefferson did as a president that pretty much crippled the uh, mercantile economy of New England. Well, Dr. Bean served as a surgeon during the American Revolution to the Continental Army. Well, what is of significance uh, on August the 22nd, and this is two days before the British burned Washington, well, Dr. Bean's welcomed British forces to his home under a flag of truce. Now, when there's, a, when there's such a thing as a flag of truce, that means that it, mean, it represents peace. Who is he inviting into his home? Major General Robert Ross. He offers Major General Robert Ross to, to come into his home along with other key-ranking men, he offers many of them an array of goods, including um, services like horses. Think about it. Offering someone a horse was a, was a what you call um, a gentlemanly thing to do. After all, in colonial times, the, one of the biggest crimes was horse theft. 
think about it. Not, all, not everybody had access to a horse. Not everybody could afford to own one. So if you stole someone's horse, you were stealing a man's livelihood. Think about it. A man has to get around from point A to B, from point A to point B somehow, and it's going to be by means of a horse. So, when the British leave Upper Marlboro, it is seen as a celebration to Dr. Beans. But here's the other um, tricky part to all this. Were British soldiers still making their presence known outside of Upper Marlboro? Yes. Up to about 100 or more soldiers were destroying homes, taking horses. Hey, horse theft, that's a, a big offense right there. And many of these, um, what do you call it, um, soldiers were just um, were stealing people's food as well. Did Dr. Beans and one of his friends, being the former governor of Maryland, Robert Bowie, for whom Bowie, Maryland's named after, encounter a British soldier or two on the property of Dr. Beans's? Yes. They encountered a gentleman named Thomas Holden, who was taken to the Bean's home, or Dr. Beans's home. Three other British men were taken captive. They were trying to rejoin their army. However, Thomas um, Holden was the opposite. Now, somehow, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if perhaps Thomas Holden, for all we know, maybe he could have been an American sailor at one time and was impressed by the British. Perhaps he was trying, perhaps the, the other British captives had Thomas Holden serve as a decoy, luring Dr. Beans and other prominent people into a trap, thinking that this fellow was a bad guy. Who knows? It, it could have very well been a trap to get Dr. Beans into, into some kind of trouble. Well, in order to avoid any further conflict, they take um, the captives, being the three prisoners, they send them to Queen Anne, which is about nine miles northeast on the upper end of the Patuxent River, where and residents living in Queen Anne mount a guard station. So well, Dr. Beans, you know, thinks that what he's done is the right thing to do, and I and I would agree here, but is Major General Robert Ross going to find out about this? Yes. Nothing secret. He's going to find out one way or another. And how is he going to find out? Well, a couple of escaped British soldiers who avoided being caught in Upper Marlboro make their way back to where Major General Robert Ross is currently at. They tell him what Dr. William Beans has done. And is, and is Major General Robert Ross angry about this? Oh, you better believe he's angry. He truly believes that Dr. Beans had stabbed him in the back. He also felt that Dr. Beans had violated honor in the flag of truce agreement.
Major General Robert Ross had gone to great lengths to keep private property out of harm's way. If you show no aggression or hostility towards him, then your private property was going to be protected. Had you shown hostility, then the opposite would have taken place. He also went out of his way to treat Dr. Beans and his guests in a proper, gentlemanly-like manner. So what is his ultimatum? If the, Brit if the British prisoners, pardon me, of war were not returned by 12 o'clock on August the 28th, then the town of Upper Marlborough was to be destroyed. Now, is Major Robert Ross, Major General Robert Ross, going to conduct this mission? No, it's going to be a gentleman named Lieutenant Evans who's going to lead the mission to capture Dr. Beans. At 1 a.m. on um, August the 28th, Lieutenant Evans and a cavalry of 85 men stroll into Upper Marlboro and with the utmost uh, extreme force there is known to mankind, make their way into Academy Hill, which is the home of Dr. Beans. And to make matters worse, there are no arrest warrants are uh, performed, no, nor any um, act of uh, probable cause suspicion. In other words, there was no uh, search warrant to go into Dr. Beans' home. The British forces pretty much yank Dr. Beans out of his bed. They treat him very inhumanely. He is not given any kind of proper rights. Well, think about it. In his day, there is no such thing as the infamous Miranda rights that we're known that we know of today in this country. In other words, the British weren't going to didn't even bother to give him the time to say, "Hey, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law." You know, do the British care? No. All they care about is getting revenge, and that is to arrest Dr. Beans. Not just to arrest him, but to just, you know, shake the living cobwebs out of him. Hey, we stuck our necks out for you. We treated you and your, and your friends with, in the way that a proper gentleman or a true gentleman would want to be treated. Uh, you guys show no hostilities towards us, but now all of a sudden you're taking our men um, hostage without any just cause. Well, is Dr. Beans the only one who gets arrested? No. Uh, a fellow by the name of Dr. William Hill, who is also a very dear friend of uh, Dr. Beans, and a young teenage boy, Philip Weems, are arrested. So the three of them are, um, are sadly in hot water for all the wrong reasons. But in the end, was Upper Marlboro spared? Yes, the American party was able to return the uh, prisoners whom they had captured, back to uh, the British uh, force. Of course, we still have a, a problem in that the British are, have not released Dr. Beans, nor have they released Dr. William Hill and young Philip Weems. Now, on August the 30th, 1814, is Washington... D.C. still in British hands, despite what has already taken place six days earlier. Yes. Did the capture of Washington change people's attitudes in America? 
Yes, it did. It led to an increase in fear. The fear of knowing what if another attack? What if another major city gets burnt? What if that city is Baltimore? Anger. How did, how did our government allow for its own capital? That is, how did we allow for the nation's capital to get burnt without even mounting of any kind of proper defense? Well, there are a lot of people out there who are still angry at James Madison, and rightfully so, because many of them believed he sold our country out to England. So anger over the thought of this happening and wondering, hey, what are we going to do to, make, to prevent it from ever happening again? Patriotism. All right, what is it going to take to make us feel better about being Americans? How can we step up to the plate? This could be an early example of what would be said many years later when President John Fitzgerald Kennedy became President of the United States. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Okay? So, nearly 3,000 men from Western Maryland are willing to join the cause in the upcoming fight for the Battle of Baltimore. And the same goes for an unprecedented number of men from Virginia and Pennsylvania begin to make their way into Baltimore. The city of Baltimore divides, is, gets divided into four quarters to ensure there would, be equal, there would be an equal number of men to dig earthwork defenses all around the city. So, hey, we've already got people now saying this question. What can we do for our country so that this never happens again? The government's not going to ask us what we can do. We're going to be the ones to say, hey, what can we do so that this doesn't happen again? And what can we do to make America great, America safe, make America proud, make its people feel good about being Americans? Because right now we need something to feel really better about because 1814 has been a very, very dark year for the United States. And it is safe to say that the disaster at Washington has, will now teach the people of Baltimore not to make the same mistakes. That is, they need to go on the offensive every step of the way. And most importantly, don't let up on the pedal. And I think it's safe to say that perhaps the people of Baltimore now have a uh, realization that maybe President Madison has come to his senses and now understands that he can no longer rely on militiamen going forward to get the job done when it comes to uh, fighting superior forces. However, come the Battle of Baltimore, militiamen will still be present. However, there's going to be a lot of reinvention taking place. Uh, in other words, there's, there's going to be better leadership. I mean, I talked about better leadership last night on the naval side. But when it comes to the Army side of things, there will be better leadership. In other words, it, there's going to be a joint effort between the Army and the Navy to ensure that Baltimore is going to come out victorious, but also that the people of our country 
are going to feel better about being Americans. Now, on August the 30th, 1814, the first um, battle leading up to the Battle of Baltimore takes place on Maryland's eastern shore at a farm known as Calk's Field. Who are the British and the American um, chief leaders for this battle? On the British side, it is Cap Captain Sir Peter Parker. Now, at the time that this battle is fought, he's not even close to 30 years of age. But he had gone to sea with the Royal Navy starting at age 13. He becomes a captain at age 20. And by the time this battle emerges, he has already gotten 15 years of service in, through, including two wars with France. He has a force of 260 sailors and marines. Now, as, as they make their way off water, off of the water and off the shore, they're going to march inland. But here's the bad part. It's one, well, first off, it's one thing to move a mile inland from the shoreline. His force goes four to five miles inland. It's not like they can just get in their cars or their Humvees, turn around and go back to where they came from. Four to five mile walk at this time, that's going to be very treacherous. Because now that you've gotten five miles past the shoreline, you don't really know what you're stepping into. And it doesn't also help that this attack is, that this battle is going to be in the middle of the night. Now, um, as for the... Um, American side, we have a gentleman named Lieutenant Colonel Philip Reed, who is the head of the 21st Maryland Regiment. He's in charge of 200 militiamen. So there is a big difference. There's a 60-man difference overall. The uh, British have, obviously, more men to ours, but just because you have more men versus the opposition, it does not automatically mean that there is a guarantee for victory. Philip Reed is an eastern. He's a native of the Eastern Shore. He's even a Revolutionary War veteran, and he's a former U.S. Senator. He sets up shop at Calk Farm, where he's going to place five artillery pieces in front of a line of woods. Captain Peter Parker of the British is fatally wounded. And when I mean fatally wounded, that means he has lost his life. He was shot, from what I read, he was shot in his uh, femoral artery. Buckshot. Um, that's a very lethal form of shot. Uh, it's very safe to say that, uh, one, that a buckshot, if that enters into your arteries, for all we know, a bullet could explode from the inside and it could kill you in a matter of um, seconds. Well, that to me is what sounds like what happened to a Captain Peter Parker. And, you know, these numbers may not seem like anything big, but for, but for uh, the American uh, side of things, it is something worth um, noting. The Americans suffered very few casualties. The British have lost 14 men that includes Captain Peter Parker and 27 wounded. 
this is a victory for the Americans at Cox Field. The Americans finally have something to cheer about. And the aftermath of the burning of Washington, as well as the previous battle, being that debacle at Bladensburg. The victory at Cox Field is the first sign that indicating that British fortunes in the Chesapeake are gradually starting to change. In other words, the gray clouds have finally been lifted for the Americans. And this is a good sign of things to come. Now, that this Battle of Baltimore, which will be discussed in another podcast down the road, will be no cupcake, or should I say cakewalk. But given that there's already a, the first victory for the Americans on the, on the Chesapeake Bay, it, it's a small battle, but a small battle goes a long way to restoring morale. So, who's going to come to the aid or rescue, I should say, of Dr. William Beans? None other than Francis Scott Key. And we will talk about um, Francis Scott Key's mission in our next podcast. Francis Scott Key hasn't missed out on anything. But he too... He, too, is very aware of, of the future of our country. He knows that Baltimore is the key to our country's um, assurance for survival, not just short-term but long-term, because if Baltimore falls, there may not be a United States anymore. Francis Scott Key was very, like so many other Americans, was very disgusted at how the British were allowed to burn Washington. It wasn't so much that we lost our nation's capital, it was how we allowed it to happen. And now Francis Scott Key has to hope, are the people of Baltimore going to be better prepared than our own governmental leaders were in Washington, most notably President Madison, Secretary of War, the former Secretary of War, John Armstrong. So, Francis Scott Key has a lot of questions to to think about, but we're also going to learn about the sacrifices he made, the sacrifices he made as an everyday American to ensure that friends like Dr. William Beans and others were safe from harm's way but also making the ultimate sacrifice and giving us hope by means of writing a song that has profound, that ought to have profound relevance to our country. Well, that is all for tonight. Thank you for uh, letting me uh, share another uh, podcast session with all of you. And I want to say thanks to all of you who have listened to every one of my podcasts from the time I first started. Now, I'm going to say this number, and I don't say this to flaunt. Believe me, I don't. But tonight's podcast marks my 41st one I have done. I feel like I've accomplished a lot, and I still have a lot to go to look forward to. But thank you, audience, for listening. Thank you for listening to my um Episodes. Thank you for getting that word out to other people out there 
who want to know more about what I'm sharing. But if any of you out there who want to do podcasting, come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless. And getting the word out is what's so important. You know, we live in a world today where there's so much violence, so much sadness, so much uncertainty. And I get it. History isn't pretty. But one thing I do know is that history is important to learn. Yes, there's a lot of good in history. Yes, there is a lot of uh, sadness. But learning about this subject, being the War of 1812, should serve as an eye-opener and a reminder that, hey, just because we defeated the British in the American Revolution, it didn't mean that our relationship with them had just improved overnight in the aftermath of defeating them. We still had a long ways to go after the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that ended the American Revolution. And now we've got to fight the Second War, which we're already into our third year of fighting, but we've still got to be able to prove that we are a worthy country, that we are worthy of having respect on the high seas. We've got to find a way to really, really earn our true independence from England. We've already won our freedom, but we're still trying to gain our independence. And that is something we're going to eventually learn in pre in upcoming podcast sessions. Thank you again. God bless and stay safe.